from the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories. As most of the country awaits their turn in line to receive a coronavirus vaccine, some have questions about its safety, how it was developed, and what it means for life after the vaccination. Today we talk with Dr. Mark Mulligan, a Notre Dame alumnus, infectious disease expert, and head of NYU's Langone Vaccine Center. Dr. Mulligan has worked on vaccine trials for decades, including most recently, the vaccine for COVID-19. You've worked in vaccine development, infectious disease for, for 30 years. So last year, when vaccines are starting to be developed around COVID-19, Operation Warp Speed is, is announced, it had to feel like something that someone in your position was uniquely suited for. Yes. Um, I have had that feeling that <laughs> this was really uh, an opportunity to to um, utilize all the experiences and training uh, that I've had over decades in, in a time of great need when we needed to be very efficient and move quickly, but also uh, with high quality, you know, particularly with regard to safety of clinical trial participants, but educating um, the public and uh, talking to media and so forth. So, yeah, it really has felt like an opportunity to be of service, to make contributions. So I want to cover some of the questions that, that people are asking um, you know, around it. And I think one of the big things that, that raises eyebrows is how quickly the vaccines were developed. Can you, can you explain a little bit about how and, and why these were developed so quickly, um, especially because I think we've been told you know, at the start of this thing that vaccines could take years? It really was a, an opportunity to utilize a, a new platform in a major global uh, pandemic. Well, when the pandemic was declared uh, by WHO, um, there already since January, when the sequence to the virus was published, there were efforts underway to utilize this pre-existing platform and in essence slot in the sequence, the gene, for the spike protein of this novel coronavirus and start producing these RNA vaccines. So within a week or so, they were already making the vaccines. Hmm. Um, and they knew, you know, they, they had the insight to know that this was a major global health emergency. So there was a strong reason to move as quickly as we could. And there was an opportunity with this platform being ready. It had been developed over decades. So the platform had, a you know, years long moving to this point and it just came together uh, beautifully. The other, the other ways that um, this pretty incredible, you know, speed is seven, eight months after starting the human trials, we have a a vaccine that's rolled out to the public. Uh, the other way that was achieved, in addition to the use of the pre-existing platform, was, um, frankly, intense effort. Mm. People being inspired to really work hard um, in, in all sectors, contributing to this accomplishment. Uh, and uh, two other things. One was things were done in, in, in parallel that normally are done in series. So the FDA signed off on some animal work being done as the early human studies began, and that produced a time saving, again, because of the nature of the emergency. Um, uh, and, and finally, the companies actually produced vaccine, you could say at risk, before they knew the vaccine was going to be safe and effective, they were making large amounts. So it would be available 
So when the emergency use authorizations were granted in mid-December by FDA, as you saw, within days, they were able to start distributing and, and vaccinating uh, via our states and local governments. So we, we kind of layered some steps uh, and found efficiencies other ways. Um, can, you, can you talk more about the, the clinical trials? Because oftentimes those can be uh, real, uh, really lengthy in, in their time. And, and here, you know, we, we were able to do things pretty quickly. I'm wondering how we achieved uh, such a time frame there. The other thing to note about the um, speed that was uh, accomplished was that no safety corners were cut. Mm. Uh, I've, I've been doing trials for decades, and, and I can tell you with all certainty that we, we really did do everything we normally do with regards to safety. So I think that's an important part of the uh, message about how speed was achieved, but reassuring people that all the safety measures were taken. Um, so the clinical trials uh, were also... Um, efficient. And this was using some novel designs of the trials that were approved by FDA. So uh, there was con continuous submission of data in a rolling fashion to FDA. They, they allowed this to happen. It's not the normal way that FDA looks at the data. Uh, the phase two, three trials were sort of collapsed. Those first several hundred in phase two uh, were sort of collapsed in a phase two, three, uh, phase two, three trial. So it allowed for um, real-time review by FDA, feedback from FDA to the manufacturers and to NIH, you know, what needed to be tweaked or adjusted along the way. And it really was a, a, an amazing partnership uh, between industry, academia, NIH, U.S. Uh, regulatory. Talk about the, um, the populations represented in, in the trials, because I know that was uh, something that, that you paid careful attention to as well. Yeah, this was really important. We, we uh, knew that we needed to be inclusive of those most affected, those most at risk for serious COVID and death uh, in those that we enrolled in the trials. And, and that includes, of course, everyone knows older adults, but also minorities. Racial and ethnic minorities have a, a three to fourfold higher risk of, of infection, of hospitalization, of death. And so when we when we began our campaigns to educate and engage and invite participation from communities, we went to Harlem and we talked to minorities. We did town hall meetings uh, with African-American churches and, and their um, members. Also, we had Spanish language uh, town hall meetings uh, with uh, Spanish community-based organizations uh, multiple times uh, in different places around the city in Brooklyn. We also placed our research clinics in the hospitals that where we could access these populations, these communities where they would be uh, trafficking. So hmm. we were at the VA for older adults and those with chronic conditions. We were at Bellevue, one of the large city hospitals in New York City that's very diverse, very international, many minorities. Uh, and same for, for Brooklyn, Long Island. Um, so we planned our, our enrollments or our education engagement to ensure we had that enrollment that we needed. The reason that's so important has to do with um, the rollout of the vaccines, that once they're approved, we needed to be able to go to the, these highest risk communities and say, yes, the vaccine was studied in your community. Um, yes, minorities, older adults, um, ethnic minorities, racial, participated in the trials at an at a actually very high level, higher than we have seen in most clinical trials, in the range of 30 
to 40 percent uh, minority participation, mm. for example, in the Pfizer uh, trials and, and in the other trials uh, very close to that. And that's actually quite good. Mm. We're in a time when we're rebuilding trust in leadership, in government, in science. And so uh, this will be a, a time of healing as well. And for minority communities, for those who are disaffected, we need to rebuild those ties. And uh, it's really important for medicine, for science, for government to be reaching out to uh, all of our communities, including minority communities who have rightful uh, distrust of government based on past and ongoing inequity and, and uh, uh, lack of access. So this is a really important area. And I would encourage our students to be thinking about careers uh, in science, in medicine, and in, uh, in equity. These are going to be major, major areas in tying all of those together as we go forward. I want to talk about um, effectiveness. You know, Pfizer, Moderna, they came out with uh, a well-publicized effectiveness rate around 90 percent and north of that. Uh, Johnson & Johnson announces their trial results at something like 85 percent effective against severe illness, something like 66 percent protection against infection. I guess my question is, what should our threshold be for, for success? How should we be thinking about these in terms of the, the ultimate goal, which is knocking down the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, this is important because the public has, uh, and, and all of us have seen and heard about the 95% protection from uh, the RNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And frankly, that was a, a home run, a grand slam. And uh, our very best vaccines are, you know, in the 90s. So a lot of our vaccines uh, work it's in the 70s. In the annual flu vaccine, you know, we need a better one. But right now, it's, it's often in the 50s mm. or sadly sometimes lower. So FDA has said they will license a safe vaccine if it's at least 50% effective. Um, we, we, uh, Dr. Fauci, I heard him say if it had been, if the RNA vaccines had been 70% effective, he would have been very, very happy. So the 95 was just amazing. And I think the other vaccines may or may not end up being that high. And that's perfectly fine. Mm. Um, the, the numbers we're starting to see, uh, uh, you know, are coming in either close. Um, we had one, uh, this week, uh, in the past week that was from Novavax that was reporting close to 95% as well, a little bit lower uh, for J&J. &J. And it also depends on which country, what are the variant viruses that are circulating. Uh, but I think we should be accepting of any vaccine we can get. My advice to my patients is, look, the vaccine supply is limited. You know, you may not have a choice of which vaccine is available at your clinic, your hospital, your institution, and that all of these vaccines, if they get an FDA EUA, have been shown to be safe and that they are effective uh, at a level that will be very, very important contributing to herd immunity. We need to get the bulk of the population vaccinated and um, achieve herd immunity, which may mean 90% of people vaccinated. So we need all of them. There's not going to be enough supply with just the, the RNA, the 95% vaccine. So we have to take a, a little bit of a broader view and um, realize that um, we may not get to pick and choose our vaccines. And I think that's okay. Take what you can get. They're all safe. They're all effective. So we've, we've talked a bit about what we know the vaccines can do. I wonder if we could talk just a second about what we don't know that they can do. And, and what I'm getting at here is, um, 
you know, I've heard it said that you still need to wear the mask, physically distance, do all yeah. the things, even if you've had the vaccine. And, and I'm curious why. Yeah. So the vaccines are highly effective, but not 100% effective. So that's a number one reason is that um, we, until we get control of the pandemic, we must continue to wear the mask to protect ourselves. Um, if, if you think about the fact that we've now vaccinated, I don't know, 25 million Americans, um, 5% of 25 million is a big number, thousands and thousands of people. So to keep the bulk of us, uh, you know, and to, to start to reduce this pandemic, we need to continue the mass social distancing, um, limiting gathering size, testing, quarantine, isolation. That's shoe leather public health. It's decades and decades old, and it works. It's highly effective. And the other reason is that the primary endpoint that has the 95% level is laboratory confirmed COVID disease. What we don't know yet is if these vaccines reduce asymptomatic infection from whom spread might occur to others. And so if I got vaccinated and then said, okay, I don't have to wear my mask, I, we don't actually know if you're protected against asymptomatic infection. We know that CDC says about half of infections can be asymptomatic without, you know, anything that would make you think you had COVID. And yet those people can transmit. And this is more likely to occur in younger people who seem to handle the virus a little bit better and have fewer or less severe symptoms or even no symptoms. So it's really, really important, I would say, in a, in a university setting and in student populations, to remember that, that even though we're vaccinated, we, we don't yet have the data. And, and I think we need to take sort of the team approach that until we get herd immunity, and I would say that's, we're talking the second half or late in 2021, uh, we've, we're going to have to continue wearing masks and just commit to that. It's the right thing. It's simple. And it's the world we're in right now. Mm -hmm. So you, we know if we get vaccinated, you know, you're likelihood of severe illness is is very low, but uh, you may still contract the virus in, in an asymptomatic fashion and be able to spread it that way. Right. There's an aspect uh, to vaccination of altruism. You may take it to protect yourself, but also you may protect those around you, particularly if you had asymptomatic infection, no symptoms, and then might give it to a vulnerable individual who maybe can't respond well to a vaccine, perhaps a, a frail elderly person or someone with cancer or other form of immunocompromised like HIV or a drug that reduces their immune response because of an autoimmune condition. So really, really important to protect those around us that we all get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You touched on the university setting and, you know, you're a Notre Dame alum. You know, this is a place that, that places a premium on community and being together. Um, I'm curious what you would say to, to students, you know, as an infectious disease expert about following the guidelines and and the importance of listening to science, even though it means that maybe we aren't in the community the way we have been in the past. Yeah, you know, I, I know that Notre Dame is a, is a place of science and uh, a leader. And I think that for students, faculty, administrators, um, we really want to be following the guidelines, getting vaccinated, um, and uh, continuing with the public health recommendations that we need to keep doing, even in the era of vaccination, until we get control of the pandemic. So that would include mask wearing, social distancing, limiting the size of gatherings, um, and then, of course, 
testing, quarantine, isolation when indicated. I just think it's the right thing to do. It's it's a, an altruistic act. It's an act of service, an act of community, recognizing that maybe I might be a young person and maybe I feel, well, gee, I, I'd probably do well if I get it. But actually, if I get it, even if I do well, I might give it to someone else who could die. So there is definitely a social component to getting vaccinated, an act of service and community. So I'm, I'm the father of two Notre Dame graduates, and I, I feel that I can, and they're young adults now, and I feel that I can speak to the students. I was a Notre Dame student, and my message would be, please get vaccinated. It's the right thing to do. The vaccines have been shown to be safe and highly effective, and you'll be not only protecting yourself, but you'll be protecting those around you who may not be able to respond to vaccines or, uh, uh, or not protected by the vaccines. It really is an important act for yourself, but equally important for those around you. Dr. Mulligan, thank you very much. Thank you for the work you're doing. You're very welcome, Andy. I enjoyed it. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour. Thank you.